Yeah, it's perfect album. So you ready to? Uh, you want to? You want to get? Uh, get on chatting? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Well, welcome to Something to Do, a podcast devoted exclusively to discussion and devotion of two of our favorite bands, Husker Du and The Replacements. Each episode will be nerding out about all aspects of two of the most influential bands in the pantheon of American rock acts. I'm Jude, and this is my co-host, Greg. This week, we'll be discussing The Replacements' 1987 release, Pleased to Meet Me, released on Sire Records. So first, just some quick bookkeeping. Again, I want to say thank you so much to everybody who's been listening, who's been following along, engaging on our social media accounts. Um, we can't express how much it means to us that you're listening to our podcast. Um, just a quick update. So um, our podcast is officially on iTunes now, um, and very shortly after five episodes, it'll be on Spotify. Um, we're working on a couple other services, but if there were other podcast streaming services that you prefer, uh, that you'd like to hear our work on, we'd be happy to, um, to do what we can to get it available on those services. If you want to just contact us at, the, at our email or through our Instagram account, we would be happy to do what we can to get our podcast on there. There's also a few corrections from last week, right, Greg? Yeah. Um, so first off, for anyone that's first-time listener, we do have a, an Instagram account uh, that would be at something to do, D-U, podcast. And then our email is the same at gmail.com. So if you have suggestions for ideas or you'd like to come on the show to, to just you know talk about either one of the bands, you don't have to be an expert. You just have to be a fan, just like we are. Um, then, you know, hit us up at one of those. And I'm thinking that I'm going to have to probably maybe join the dark side and set up a Facebook as well. Um, I'll let you know if I do, (laughs) if I decide to do that. Um, so yeah, so as far as, so as far as corrections, um, I want to shout out my friend, uh, Darren, who pointed out, uh, he and I saw Bob play back in 2016, uh, April 26, 2016 to be exact, at the Underground Arts, which is a venue here in Philadelphia. And he was touring on Patch the Sky, and he played Hardly Getting Over It. And for some reason, I must have forgotten. So (laughs) I looked at the set list and was like, oh, yeah. there we go. So yeah, he did. And you know, that was a, an excellent show, by the way, for the, for that record, a uh, nice small venue that was packed. Uh, Bob had, you know, Bob and the band were just firing on all cylinders and you can actually view the set list. If you just Google Bob Mould underground arts, 2016 set list. And you can see it was like hit after hit some Husker stuff. He did even a uh, track or two from uh, Beaster. Uh, he did he did uh he did a song from beaster he did come around he did some husker songs um it was just a a really great set so thanks again to darren for uh reminding me of that and it made me a little upset that that i didn't remember (laughs) it myself but what can you do I would have loved to have heard that Beaster stuff. That's like one of my favorites. So there was also some discussion um, in last week's episode where we, we were kind of speculating about like exactly how much and what kind of drug use was going on during the recording of Candy Apple Gray. 
Um, and the Instagram user uh, whose handle is at JoeyJoJo1970 um, pointed out that the chorus to the song Eiffel Tower High includes the long Mary, the line Mary Eiffel Tower High, the first letters of which spell meth. Uh, equally, the title track or the track of the, the name of the first track on the album is Crystal for a reason. Um, so thanks, JoeyJoJo1970 for pointing that out. So uh, I always thought I always thought crystal was just uh, about like healing crystals, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm so funny and oblivious with that kind of stuff. Like I'm just like anytime somebody's like I'm hanging out with somebody. I, I mean, not not anymore these days, but like I'm always like, oh, huh, that's funny. It kind of seemed like uh, S- Steve was just really energetic tonight. I don't. <laughs> he must yeah. have had, got some good sleep last night. I don't know why. <laughs> Man, what coffee is he drinking? Yeah. <laughs> so we have um, some news too uh, for fans of Husker Du and specifically Bob Mould. Um, this week, Bob announced a new album already. He Sunshine Rock just came out last February, um, and now he has a new record coming out in September on the twenty fifth on Merge Records called Blue Hearts. He released the first single. Uh, it's a video with, with lyrics. Uh, it's for a song called American Crisis. And it is a ripper. Uh, Jude, yeah. what are your thoughts on the new song? I know you, you were, uh, had a chance to play it a couple times this week. Yeah, it's just so awesome. Like m- musically, like it just really displays Bob's ability to write a super fast, aggressive, catchy song. Lyrically, it's like such a perfect, pertinent protest song. Um, I know that like when the album was announced in text, Greg, you and I were kind of like, oh, okay, well, for some reason we were kind of speculating, oh, this one's going to kind of be like maybe like a toned down, like acoustic album. Um, And then we heard the song itself and uh, took me maybe about three minutes to pull my jaw off the floor. Yeah, like I, I think the reason, first off, I was so excited to see the announcement that like I just read through the, the, the press kit, but like probably skipping every other line, like just, you know, because I was just so, because I wasn't expecting, like you know, hit at Christmas. Yeah, like Bob's very prolific, but I, for some reason I wasn't because I didn't see anything on social media from you know Jason or or John uh, about recording because I know before they would hint that they were recording, so that was part of it. I thought, well, maybe it's just Bob. Maybe he's doing an album, you know, just by himself, like kind of like like a workbook kind of vibe. And saw the video and was like. Nope, it's just another, you know, this will now be the fifth album that he's done since 2012 with that lineup. And it's, you know, if this single's any indication, it's going to be another just super awesome record that's going to probably top my year-end list, uh, just like Sunshine Rock did last year. And now was definitely the time, uh, without getting too political or anything, but now was the right time to release uh, that song. Yeah. And it just made me, you know, cause we are seeing some things in the media with certain people that maybe when we were younger, we used to look up to and they're having these kind of trash opinions. Yeah. So it was nice to see Bob just come out and it made me proud to be, uh, you know, a lifelong fan. Yeah. So 
look for that in September and we will definitely be doing uh, an episode, you know, when that comes out, breaking it down and sharing our thoughts. Yeah. So also um, something that was brought up as a suggestion to us was about possibly mentioning, you know, we, when we did Candy Apple Grey, we mentioned the singles, but those singles had unreleased B-sides. So, you know, we were debating for each episode, also talking about the singles and the respective B-sides. And we kind of came to the conclusion that in the interest of time and continuity, what we're going to do is we will actually have uh, separate episodes where we discuss, you know, replacements B-sides. So we'll talk about what, what the single was, what the B-sides were. You know, we'll go through track by track, just like we've been doing for the albums. Uh, we'll do it for replacements, Who's Could Do, uh, and Sugar, as they're going to be the big ones. Sugar have, a, you know, for being a band yeah. for not very long, have lots of B-sides. They do have the B-sides collection, so it may be, you know, an episode with that and then anything that was left off that. But we just figured, you know, we do appreciate the suggestion and, um, you know, we're going to be doing it as a separate episode. So enough about all that. We're going to move on to this week's album, which is The Replacements, Pleased to Meet Me from 1987. Yeah. So just some general thoughts. Um, First, uh, as, as listeners know, um, we're going through Husker Du and the replacements um, as well as um, related bands um, in a, in a non-linear way, right? So this is obviously our first full episode about the replacements. And why did we start with this one? My personal background with the record was that this was actually the first replacement CD that I ever had. So in an earlier episode, I think episode one, Greg mentioned that he always loved the reissues because the reissues always had obviously things like remastered iterations of the songs or, um, you know, additional tracks. Um, I would always use the, um, I would always go for the non reissue CDs when I was buying them one because they were cheaper and I was very much on a budget and another, uh, because, uh, a little sycophantic, but I knew that I could always kind of get any extra reviews or materials from Greg. Um, cause you've always been so generous throughout our friendship with sharing that stuff. But this record for me, was the first the first replacement CD that I had, and it just like blew my mind. It just got me super super interested in everything that they had their hands in. And we'll obviously talk more about individual tracks and the rest of the album coming up. But Greg, how about your background with the record? So, for me, this album has a very personal connection that I'm going to get into when I, you know, when we go through the tracks. But I think that, you know, that's going to be my main reason. But also just, it's, dare I say, I'm not necessarily saying it's my favorite replacements record, but it's the most consistent. I, agree. I don't think there's any real, you know, filler tracks. Um, and it's got, I love the recording. I think that they got that... Uh, you know, they got a really nice recording and production on it, which, you know, we'll, we'll be discussing, but it's just, it's just a great record. I think it's the one too, where I can really see like in the early nineties, Goo Goo Dolls, which I'm a huge fan of that period of them. They were really harnessing a lot of that, that pleased to meet me era um, sound of the replacements. And it's just a, it's a great record. Like I'm, I'm really excited to do this one because this was not a slow burn. Just like with you, Jude, it was like yeah. immediately I heard it and I was like, Oh, this is, this is yeah. amazing. Where have you been all my life? 
Exactly. <laughs> uh, moving on from our own individual relationships with the record, some stuff about the album uh, itself. So as normal, we're going to go over a little bit leading up to the record because that plays a part in the whole story. So we'll start with the release of Tim, uh, which was their major label debut, came out in October of 1985. So they were getting some buzz off of that. They played um, you know, a bunch of shows, and then it kind of culminated with them actually playing on Saturday Night Live in January of 1986. Uh, we'll discuss nitty-gritty of that on the uh, episode for Tim. And then um, they're building up steam. They play on Saturday Night Live. It's, it's an infamous performance. Anybody that's a fan knows. Yeah. Um, and they do gain, they gain some traction from it, as I said. So then in May of 1986, Rolling Stone magazine has their first annual hot issue, which they still actually have to this day, I'm pretty sure. Right, Jude? Yes. Yeah, I, I believe so. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't, read or subscribe anymore but yeah. i know that i feel like i've seen it you know in the bookstore back when we were able to go into bookstores yeah and um so they have this hot issue where they basically you know would say here's the hottest the hot actor the hot athlete the hot tv show and the hot band was the replacements and there was an interview with paul uh in the issue with several pages um and other people of note in the hot issue were laura dern the actress james cameron the director and you know Mike Tyson, who needs no introduction. Yeah. He's Mike Tyson. Some heavy hitters um, there. Yeah, Terrible unintended. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Tyson from uh, Nintendo's Mike Tyson's Punch Out game. <laughs> <laughs> the next issue, the next hot issue, actually had Soda Popinski. <laughs> terrible, dated jokes. Yeah. So, as I said, the band is just gaining steam. Things are things are looking up. They go on an East Coast um, tour, the East Coast and Southern tour in mid-June of 1986. But it's also around this time where their relationship with Bob Stinson, guitarist, was, they were starting, cracks were starting to show. On the rocks um, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, Bob, I feel like, Bob, we could do a whole episode just talking about Bob Stinson. Um, so, you know, we may have to do something like that where we showcase yeah. maybe the individuals because Bob's story is, it's pretty tragic. If it's you've so read, sad. Yeah. yeah. If you read trouble boys or even the spin magazine interview from like 1993, yeah. um, you know, from prior to his passing, it's, it's just, it's a down. Yeah. So they cite actually, um, Paul. Uh, they were at an appearance at a Long Island record store. The Sire Records had sent this cardboard display of the four band members, you know, Paul, Chris, Tommy, and Bob. And then Paul actually noticed that the way the, the way that the display was set up was that he and Tommy and Chris were on one side and Bob was on the other so that literally he could be like folded over and it would just show them as a trio, which was kind of um, telling. So, then they play two sold out shows at the Ritz in New York um, on June 20th and June 21st. So I'm going to read just a funny excerpt from uh, Bob Mears trouble boys about the first show from uh, Julie uh, 
Pan Bianco, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, who worked for Sire and Warner Brothers. So she talks about how she's hanging backstage with Paul Westerberg, you know, trying to calm him down because he's eager to play. These are big shows. Um, you know, these were at the time their biggest shows ever in New York City. So Julie's saying, quote, I said, you can't go on now. Nobody goes on early in New York. The guest list line is a block long. Then a light bulb went off in his head. You mean I get to fuck over all these people? So the replacements took the stage that minute. Patrons were still stacked at the ticket windows. Once the band started, recalled Pan Bianco, people were screaming at each other to get in. It was hysterically funny. So <laughs> that's like classic, uh, classic replacements, classic Paul Westerberg, just anything to do to get a rise out of people. Um, I mean, these are their biggest shows. And you can imagine, like we've all been at, you know, shows where you're waiting in a long line and maybe you want to see the opener and you start hearing them and you get that anxiety, like I got to get in there. So I can only imagine about like the headlining band. So for the second, oh, sorry. I was going to say such an amazing way to do something self-defeating. Right. It's like, talk about shooting yourself in the foot. (laughs) Um, So for the second show, Bob Stinson opens up the set literally asking the crowd for drugs while their manager there, uh, while their manager's there just embarrassed in front of all these like label executives from Warner brothers. So during the show, Westerberg gets fired up. He stage dives and it's like the classic comedy, you know, goof on a stage dive. No one catches him. And then he gets his uh, middle finger on his left hand stomped by a boot. So he plays a few more songs and they switch instruments. He gets on drums and then he, you know, uh, quote, hit a rim shot and finished the job on the finger. So his fingers not broken, but it's bad enough where he, he can't play guitar. They cancel the remaining shows. And in addition to their normal antics, Bob was diverging with the rest of the group about writing, right? So this is also from Trouble Boys. This is Westerberg said, slice the pie 20 ways. Bob wanted to rock harder. Bob wanted more metal music. Bob liked fast power chords. He liked to take long, big solos. We started to craft the songs, and it left less space for him to be Bob the Maniac. So they sounds start- about right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you know, reading about Bob, his influence. I mean, he was he was into you know his favorite band was Yes. Like yeah. He was into like rocking stuff. So he was he was very you know it's going on record as being pretty upset when. Paul would bring these like acoustic based ballads. So Bob, you know, and the thing, the thing with Bob is that, um, so as we, as we said, Paul, you know, hurts his, hurts his finger. They cancel the rest of the shows. So Bob had no, like he was oblivious. He had no uh, relationship with any of the label executives or people that work there to the point where there's a funny anecdote in, Trouble Boys again, where Bob asks Karen Berg, are you Seymour Stein? Um, (laughs) (laughs) So Seymour Stein being the the head of Sire Records, their label. So, you know, even Seymour Stein and the the label people knew like that Bob was a hindrance, basically, that he was kind of holding things back because of his erratic behavior. 
in a band that's already known for having right. erratic behavior. <laughs> so this tour is canceled. They're at home. Bob actually ODs. Um, mm-hmm. And he doesn't make a big deal about it, but there was some, there's some speculation that it was, you know, he was trying to end his life. Um, again, his, his story is just, you know, he's a, you hear this stuff and he's uh, so funny. There's like a lot of funny stuff, but it's also yeah. like, like I think he's often been referred to as like the sad clown. Yeah. Um, so then in August 86, they, they go to start demoing songs for what would become Pleased to Meet Me. So they go to their old haunt, uh, Blackberry Way Studios in Minnesota, Minneapolis, I believe. Um, and Bob only shows up the first, he shows up the first day for the sessions. Um, and they cut a preliminary versions of red, red wine and Valentine. And then he doesn't show up for the rest. And then the, the rest the remaining three do a few more songs, uh, none of which end up on please to meet me. So at this point, they're just really frustrated with Bob. So Paul actually quits the band. And then Tommy and Chris, he calls a meeting with Tommy and Chris, you know, Bob's not there. And Paul quits and they're basically like, well, if you start something new, who are you going to get to play bass and who are you going to get to play drums? And then they kind of through that come to the conclusion that like, well, we should still continue, but you know, unfortunately we, we can't really continue like this. We can't continue with Bob. So Chris Mars didn't want to fire Bob. Um, you know, his Chris Mars uh, brother actually suffered from mental illness and Chris felt, you know, he f- felt empathy for Bob and Tommy was obviously torn cause it's his brother. But in the end of the day, he knows like, I want to do this band. Like this is what I'm supposed to do. Um, so he says, yeah, we have to fire my brother. And Paul makes a phone call and Bob kind of knew what was coming, but you know, there's always speculation too that Bob kind of quit and he was fired. But the bottom line was after that phone call, Bob was no longer a replacement and it actually caused some trouble in, in the Stinson family. Like a lot of the family thought that Tommy was, was wrong, you know, said like, he's your brother. How could you do this? And, you know, Tommy was upset because as everyone knows, Bob's the one that thrust the bass into his hands when he was 11 years old to keep him out of trouble and said like, you know, you're, you're going down the road that I went down. It's not a good one here, play the bass instead. So then they decide to uh, record the album as a three piece. Uh, they they decide, you know, we're not going to introduce someone new into the band yet, into the dynamic. We'll record as a trio. Paul will lay down all the guitar parts. Um, but then, uh, Jude, I believe there's then there was the task, of course, of choosing a producer. Did you want to yeah. speak on that a little bit? Uh, so then they begin the complicated process for them of choosing a producer. So they quickly dismissed working with Tommy Ramone. So they met with Dave Jordan, so who did Jane's Addiction and Social Distortion. And Jordan wouldn't drink, so the band refused to work with him, like point blank. So comparing that to what ended up being the actual sessions recorded with Jim Dickinson at Ardent. So this is from um, Paul's own recollection of it as recorded in Trouble Boys. Um, Now that the band is a trio, um, Westerberg says that, quote, the three of us were now drinking for four, right? So they didn't in any way slow down their consumption. Um, They just started dispersing it among fewer people. Um, And then sort of a legendary tale about 
the recording session that actually ended up happening um, at Ardent, um, again, a little later in Trouble Boys. So during the recording session, Westerberg's like sitting in front of the board drinking, he's like chugging red wine. And as I understand it's explained, he kind of like, you know, it's like a Sunday throat kind of thing. He like coughs, sneezes, like upchucks, like mid swig um, and like catches the discharge in his hand. Um, and he sits there for like, you know, a full 10 seconds thinking about what he's going to do. And he just tosses it at the ceiling. Um, so later on after the session, John Fry, who is Arden's owner, questioned um, Jim Dickinson about the new stain that was on the ceiling of the studio. Um, and he said, quote, I'm not complaining, Jim, but I'm just curious. How did they get the vomit on the ceiling? <laughs> Um, I feel like I read something from Laura Jane Grace of Against Me, who recorded at least one album at Arden. I okay. think they did the Eternal Cowboy as the Eternal Cowboy. I, I'm blanking on the exact title. Um, yeah. And they recorded at Arden. And I feel like they said that uh, there's still stains at the studio. <laughs> I mean, and, it would almost- and, and let's say that, like, if that's not true, let's, you know, the the embellishment is better than the truth here. Cause that's a yeah. pretty funny thing, but yeah, they were, you know, like you talked about how the three were drinking for four. They admit that they were scared without Bob, you know, they were, they were scared of what the future held with them, um, you know, as a trio. And especially yeah. there's expectations from uh, Sire coming off of, you know, a modest success of Tim, but the Saturday night live performance because even though you know they were kicked off, they still it still helped them sell records. Yeah. So despite so for their this, efforts to undermine themselves, they're still doing well. Right. So they get for this one they get, I, and I forget what the budget for Tim was. We'll we'll talk about that when we talk about Tim. But I know that this was higher than the budget for Tim. This was one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So um, you know there was. So there's still the task of finding the producer. Cause again, they dismissed working with Tommy Ramone again after Tim. Um, so they get this list of producers that the labels like, Hey, you need to try these people. So yeah. there's the famous story that's recalled in trouble boys where they lock themselves into Sire's conference room and their A&R guy, Michael Hill uh, is slipping these different records by the prospective producers under the door. <laughs> and the band would just, take the record out, break it, shatter the pieces and shove them back under the door. Um, one of the famous ones they turned down. And, you know, when you read about the replacements, you see that there was a lot of unspoken or maybe spoken competition between the replacements and REM. And Scott Litt, who at that point hadn't worked with REM yet, he did like a DB's record. And I think his biggest claim to fame was, uh, Walking on Sunshine, that oh, wow. song, you know, the, the yeah. hit. And he came in and they were basically like, we're not going to work with this, you know, inexperienced guy, like forget it. So they turned him down and then he went on to great success recording like, um, you know, I think six, five or six REM albums. He worked with Gosh. them from, from Document all the way up to when Bill Berry left the band. Wow. So finally, they choose Jim Dickinson uh, mainly, you know, because of his work with Big Star, you know, Paul's a massive fan of Alex Chilton and Big Star, and there'll be more on that later. Yeah. Um, but they liked the fact that, you know, a lot of producers would hear the demos and they'd say, oh, this is cool, but we should do this and that and the other. And Jim Dickinson, you know, he's an old fashioned, you know, a 
analog type guy and he uh he hears it and is just like oh these are great as is like you don't really need to change anything so um but then there's the issue of once they start working with dickinson uh it seems like they they gave him a little bit of a hard time right jude yeah um so um I think this is from Trouble Boys, right? So Paul says, um, quote, so you, recorded, so you recorded Big Star, so fucking what? And Paul adds, I'm not going to give you 100% because you don't deserve it. <laughs> That's such a Paul thing to yeah. say. <laughs> yeah, what a like interestingly antagonistic relationship to enter <laughs> into. Right, and like this is a guy that, you know, is trying to help your band. Right. Um, and, and he's, he's trying to, you know, have you make the best record you can make. And he's saying that stuff, but it's so, it's so replacements. Like it's, yeah. it's the perfect encapsulation of their attitude. Um, so they record at Arden Studios, which is in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, over three different sessions spanning from November 86 to January 87. Yeah, and um, as we discussed last week, there's a common misconception that Husker Du were the first American indie hardcore band of the underground to sign. I think maybe this kind of comes from Stephen Blush's American Hardcore, um, maybe from elsewhere, but it's actually not true because the replacements were signed almost a full year prior to Husker Du. Um, yeah, like we said, Tim came out in October 85. Uh, at that point, Husker Du didn't even sign. They signed Veterans Day, of, which is in November. Of yeah. 85 so yeah they were they already had an album out in the stores um on a major label yeah another kind of just general thought so this is um it has maybe one of their best known songs on it alex chilton um so uh this song i remember was on guitar hero 2 the video game it's a lot of fun to play <laughs> uh, also <laughs> i'm bad at real guitar and i'm even worse at guitar hero <laughs> Which like is not doesn't make any sense, but it's just like my brain can't move from playing strings and chords to like the colored buttons. So I don't even know if I ever played um, if I ever played that song on there. I've only ever, I really only ever played Guitar Hero. At, like when I took the kids to Chuck E. Cheese, they would have like a couple nice. songs on there, <laughs> but that wasn't one of them, unfortunately. Oh. Yeah, also kind of anecdotally, this seems to be just one of the songs that that uh, people I talk to who are otherwise unfamiliar with The Replacements know this song. Again, pure anecdata, but um, it seems to be uh, a song that, that's the, the song Alex Chilton seems to be really well known. Yeah, it's definitely one of the quote unquote hits, I would say. Yeah. Like, you know, it's it's a... You know, <laughs> I want to say it's a must-have staple in the set list, but we all know that they don't operate like that with the set list. Right, so, right. you know, there's some bands where you know, like, oh, they're, they're you know, you see, uh, you see R.E.M., you know, you're going to, you know, hear It's the End of the World as we know it, but that's right. not how the replacements work. So. <laughs> so I guess now we can really get into the album itself, the the track, so... It opens with the song IOU. Uh, Jude, did you want to share some thoughts on that uh, that track? Yeah, for sure. So this um, this song was inspired by something that Westerberg saw Iggy Pop write in an autograph. So Westerberg was kind of like peeking over the shoulder of Iggy Pop writing an autograph, and he noticed that he wrote on it IOU nothing, which is um, 
you know, you can imagine Westerberg was immediately just really taken with the uh, in-your-face attitude of that. But I always think that there's a really classic irony to that because it's a song about refusing to pay your dues, essentially. And in itself, it is subtly paying dues to an important, um, you know, punk rock figure. But that theme continues into the next song of sort of paying your dues to um, important musical heroes. Some other thoughts about this this track, right? The the losing don't cost much line always just kind of jumped out at me. So granted, the replacements didn't sort of invent uh, purely solely by themselves this idea of, you know, kind of like successful losers. Um, but as you talked about earlier, Greg, influences that you hear, uh, ways that this record influenced, say, like early Goo Goo Dolls and other things, you know, this song and some of the lyrical content of it always kind of uh, struck me as setting off a string of um, a long string of sort of like loser rock that would follow afterwards, right? I don't know, just kind of thinking like off the top of my head, but the like teenage angst has paid off well line that begins in utero, or I don't know, I mean, Beck's loser or something, right? But like a long line of sort of celebrating yeah, the, being a loser. The lovable loser, right? Like yeah. that's what they, they were like, the lovable losers. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, obviously too, it, it was part of the band before this in Michael Azarad's Our Band Could Be Your Life. He talks about before a show, they would all kind of get together and chant like, where are we going to go? To the middle. Where? Right to the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. And that's, like I said, that's why, that's why we, uh, that's why people love them though. Yeah. Um, How about your thoughts about IOU, Greg? Um, yeah. I mean, you covered, you covered a good deal of, of it. I just think it's a, I mean, my own opinion, it's a great opening track and really this is, I'm going to say the third release in a row for them where they had a great opening track, you know, hold my life uh, mm -hmm. on, on Tim and, uh, I will dare on let it be. So this is just continuing in that tradition of having a song right out the gate that crushes. Um, in the review in Rolling Stone magazine, they said this song uh, was like listening to Exile on Main Street at 78 RPM. That's awesome. And uh, I think that's, I can't really think of a, another, an, uh, another way to put it. It really does have that sound. It's like, it's like Rolling Stones mixed with like punk rock energy um, has cool, funny, clever lyrics. Mm -hmm. Just a great, a great song. Yeah. What I find interesting is that um, uh, uh, in last week's episode on Candy Apple Gray, we had like kind of some deliberation about the placement of the first song on that album. But conversely, I think that like, you know, the first song on this record, I agree, is just such a killer opener. And same for the two before that and two records before that. And I would say that the first song on the two albums that follow this are also really strong openers. I feel like the replacements like really were good at that, like pull you in with a killer yeah. opening track. The, and the only time they didn't was Hootenanny. Yeah. And they did that right. on purpose. They right. did that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> so they put like, you know, the title track on there. But um, yeah, I agree. It's just like, it's a, it's a great opener. It has a lot of energy. Um, you know, I can only imagine seeing them around that time. Uh, you know, the, I'm, I'm assuming they probably opened with the song, uh, you know, a, a good deal of times. Uh, anyone who saw them on that tour can maybe let us know. I'm just kind of making assumptions here. Yeah. So up next is uh, track two, which we touched on a little bit, 
uh, Alex Chilton. What do you think about that one? Jim? Yeah, just as somebody who's always been into, you know, punk and musical subcultures, so the liner notes in uh, any piece of music that I get was always something. And like the thank yous that were in there were always like things that I would spend a lot of time pouring over. Right. And I would always kind of use it as a way to like, you know, seek out other bands. When I got the CD, I was super thankful for this since it's basically just like a guidebook of music you should listen to, right? Yeah, I mean, it's you get the, it, it's. I mean, it can't be more blunt, right? It's called right. Alex Chilton, so of course you're you're gonna look up. You know, I knew of Big Star because again, being an REM fan, yeah. Peter Buck being you know a, a big champion, a big star, like, um, you know, but this song really was what made me dive even deeper into the, the big star rabbit hole. It's just a, it's just a great song. Um, but to touch on what you said earlier, it's, it's kind of funny because now people don't really have, I mean, I'm not saying people don't have liner notes to pour over, but it's not like it used to be. Yeah. Or, you know, you would look through like, you know, like us coming from hardcore and punk, you'd look through the thanks list and oh, they, they thank, uh, you know, they thank this band. I got to check this out. Or they thank, yeah. you know, and that's kind of an, an art. I don't know about an art. It's a, it's something that's just a little bit lost, yeah. you know? Yeah, I know. Um, or, or it just kind of takes on a different format. Greg, I know you're a big fan of the 1975 and they're always really great about like wearing like uniform choice shirts or sort of like repping other music that they're into and right. sort of showing their influences like this. Yeah. Song. Like, cause it's like, it's, they're they're like a pop group kind of, but it it can you know by having stuff like that where there's pictures of them in a you know youth of today shirt or a new order shirt or whatever you know a kid that's really a fan at least that's the way I was with Nirvana you know like Kurt Cobain mentioned Bad Brains well I got to go listen to Bad Brains or yeah. he mentions you know whatever and or he's wearing you know a shirt urge overkill i gotta check out urge overkill and, yeah. and stuff like that so this song kind of is in that spirit it's like it's like talking about you know um i think i heard it once compared to like it's a wonderful life in reverse where it's like talking about how great the world would be if everybody knew who alex chilton was because especially at this point in 1987 he was a real underground you know yeah. he big star was done he put out you know some solo albums that were pretty challenging and um, he wasn't like a house, not that he's a household name now, but he wasn't yeah. even close to being as known as he is now, you know, and he unfortunately passed um, about 10 years ago. So, but yeah, good, good observation too about that. So my take, I just, I think this is just a perfect pop song, but it's also really unique. You know, mm-hmm. we, you know, the the lyrics for one the the subject matter you know writing a pop song about somebody else using their name as the title um and it's not like writing a pop song about you know elvis presley or someone that everybody knows it's like yeah it's kind of a, a neat tip of the hat i mean when i you know like i talked about in episode one i didn't get into the replacements until later in life um so at this point you know when my um when i was expecting my second kid i you know this song had been a constant repeat um and i was also heavy into big star um so my kid's literally named after this song his name's alex awesome. um 
So it's after this song and, you know, to, to add a little hardcore cred um, from uh, the band Side by Side, who had a killer seven inch on Revelation Records, mm-hmm. uh, actually released the same year as Please to Meet Me. Huh. Um, the song Living a Lie, right before the breakdown, the singer Jules uh, screams, Alex! And I just always thought that was so cool. It goes like right into the, yeah. uh, you know, the mosh part. So that was in my consciousness. And I just, knew that that was a name that I liked and here we are. So that's such an awesome story. That's so yeah, it's a, awesome. it's a great, it's a great song. It just, yeah. if someone never heard the replacements, that might be, I, I, it's hard to even pick one, but that would definitely be a contender. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such, it's such an, it's such an awesome song. I think like it's a really unique example of Westerberg paying homage to anyone since as we've talked about on this episode before, um, he had a tendency to be antagonistic, even with those that were trying to support him. Right. So up next is track three. Uh, it's a song called I Don't Know. Um, this one is, I love the self-referential lyrics, you know, mm-hmm. one foot in the door, another one in the gutter. Um, and that call and response, you know, Paul sings a line, the band answers him, but there's the, you know, Memphis horns in the back, the woo! background Mm -hmm. vocals um it's a good one what are your what are your thoughts on that one yeah i mean bob mayer in um trouble voice describes this song the one foot in the door the other one in the gutter that sweet smell you adore i think i'd rather smother he describes this song as a state of the mats address um which i think is just such a perfect way to characterize their um antagonistic relationship with um, yeah like it it it's almost for the the way this song and iou both really bring the album cover to life if that makes yeah. sense mm-hmm. you know the album covers the the one hand in the suit you know someone wearing a suit shaking the hand of someone wearing all ripped and torn punk rock you know clothing and like iou and i don't know really uh drive that point home yeah yeah and the other just the um really kind of continuing a theme um from the previous song you know sort of like meta kind of song the dig at the producer here the line who's behind the board they tell me he's a dope that line always struck me as like that's the most ballsy line to record yeah, it's literally like the term don't shit where you eat like, <laughs> like, like you're gonna you're gonna trash the engineer that's working on your on record. <laughs> like it's just classic classic westerberg yeah so uh next track nightclub jitters what are your thoughts about that one greg so i know you're a tom waits fan um i'm not too well versed in tom waits but to me this sounds like what i imagine tom waits sounds like or at least earlier you know tom waits i'm familiar with you know the songs that he did uh that are during the don't tell a soul sessions that are on the dead man's pop uh, box set Um, it is funny, this one, you know, it's the piano, the upright bass, like they never did a track like this. It's like loungy sounding. And Paul actually said to Jim Dickinson, this is from Trouble Boys. He says, quote, if we're going to cut this song, we're going to have to get real musicians. (laughs) (laughs) Like as if, as if the band themselves weren't real musicians. Right. So there's a little cool story that was relayed, um, you know, in the book where, you know, Jim Dickinson, obviously being a Memphis native, he has all these connections with different uh, session guys. And he has someone named uh, Edward Prince Gabe Kirby, uh, who's like a Memphis horn legend, 
uh, come and play the saxophone part. So, you know, there's that sleazy sounding saxophone yeah. towards, uh, you know, the end of the song. And at the end of him playing it, the whole band actually applauded. And a few weeks after they were, you know, he laid down that track, he actually died of, uh, he died at 57 years old mm. of uh, high blood pressure and asthma complications. Um, and the, the, the legend is that he died while he was with the <laughs> prostitute to which, you know, Tommy Stinson says, well, that's the way we wanted to go out. If you got to go, you want to go out on stage or fucking. So, <laughs> and then um, there's actually a tribute to, to Prince Gabe on the sleeve and in the inside of the record, Chris Mars drew that saxophone drawing that uh, it's posted in the, I, I shared it on our Instagram um, if people want to see it. Uh, if you slide over through through the please to meet me post uh, with the it shows the insert and everything in the label, so it's neat. They they did do a little tribute. So what do you think about this one? Yeah, so um, totally hear the Tom Waits connection. This song could be like right at home on Small Change or Nighthawks at the Diner or something like that. One thing that really strikes me about this song is like what great pacing there is on the album. And I feel like that's something that by, by contrast, I love Let It Be. Um, it's obviously an amazing record, um, but I always felt like, and I think, you know, I wouldn't be alone in this position, but the uh, songs sort of frantically jump all over the place. Just the speed, the message of the songs. I feel like at this one, we described this whole album earlier in this episode as being a little bit more consistent. And I feel like um, this song uh, is a good example of how the, the album itself sort of figures out how to take the listener on a carefully curated journey. Yeah, like you have, you know, the opening thrash, almost thrashy, you know, track yeah. with IOU, then the pop song, then you got another like up tempo rocker, mm-hmm. and then you got this lounge song. Yeah. Um, and uh, then we move on actually to the last song, you know, if we're talking vinyl. Yeah. I'm always talking vinyl. <laughs> no, you are. Yeah. Uh, the last song on side A is uh, The Ledge, which The Ledge was eventually chosen as you know to be the single um they thought this was going to be like the breakout song for them but because of the lyric matter um because this song's lyrics are you know an interesting and pretty harrowing take on teen suicide yeah um it's not like a feel-good song no um it has that blue oyster cult uh, don't fear the reaper feel hmm. in the beginning of yeah. the song. And interesting. I never thought you know, of it that way. They, they had chosen this and I think they sent it to MTV, which, you know, as any of us coming of age in the eighties uh, and nineties, you know, MTV was huge. Yeah. Like if you could get a video on MTV, you could sell a lot of records. Yeah. And they had the video sent it to MTV and MTV actually rejected it due to the, due to the subject matter. Mm. Yeah. And Bob Mayer talks about this in, in trouble boys, but there was also um, a tragic string of teen suicides after the release of the song that obviously the replacements couldn't have anticipated. Um, but it, it just contributed to the PR problems that they were having around this time, especially since this was one of the singles. One other thing, like just kind of, thinking out loud a little bit, but that strikes me about this song as we're going through the track by track is that this is um, 
obviously a song about emotional turmoil, but it, to my knowledge, is the first song on the record that is f- not, that is overtly from someone else's perspective, right? Yeah. Whereas yeah, the, first, the first two songs especially are like clearly appear to be Paul speaking on behalf of Paul. Right. And, and I'm, I'm obviously we don't want to glorify, um, right. You know, suicide or, or, or depression and things like that. They're real, you know, depression and mental health is, it's a real problem, um, in, in the world. But the interesting, you know, part about the song and not necessarily, I don't necessarily, again, not glorifying it, but this is a suicide song where the person actually goes through it and you can hear it in the track. You know, you can hear basically that, you know, they recorded the vocal. So it feels like the person's jumping off the ledge. Like that's, that's heavy. I mean, this, this is a heavy, heavy track that really speaks to that feeling of alienation though, that I think everybody can relate to. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's sort of a shame that MTV rejected it and it didn't become a hit because I think it could almost be used as a discussion point instead of being this taboo thing. It could have, you know, who knows, it could have really opened up dialogue about, uh, you know, teen suicide and mental yeah. health. Um, and I feel like that was what Westerberg was going for. I don't think he was trying to like glorify, oh yeah, the song about somebody jumping off a ledge. Like I never got that feel from it, that vibe. Gosh, well, not necessarily um, a song overtly about suicide, but a song, you know, uh, that came uh, several years later that MTV, you know, really did latch onto. And the music video was really important to communicating a message about from another related Twin Cities band, right? But like, Soul Asylum's Runaway Train, you know, a song about troubled teens, was able to really maybe tap into that kind of message that the replacements were seeking to communicate here. Or, you know, I guess another perspective on it is that the replacements laid the groundwork for other bands to continue that discussion in different ways. Yeah. And that helped Soul Asylum sell. Try to say that three times. (laughs) 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 That helped them sell a lot of records that was on grave dancers union from 92 and you know runaway train wasn't until the following year and that was what like made them break out and they won a grammy and they mm-hmm. they uh they played like the clinton inauguration and all cool. this stuff so yeah and that you know you could say that songs like like the ledge maybe paved the way for for that kind of introspective but very real songwriting yeah so now we're going to flip the record over um, and side B starts, uh, I forget if I said side one for the first and B it's like that scene in home alone where <laughs> right. buzz says a two D right. But you know, the first we'll say the first side, flip it over. <laughs> we go to side two. So, uh, what do you have to say about the song? Never mind, Jude. This is such a great song. It's such a catchy song. It's a great way to begin side B. Um, Greg, I know you have a lot more thoughts about this, but the one line that always jumps out at me is the I'm not ready as I'll ever be. It's just such a classic Paul Westerberg line in that it's just half a turn too cute. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think, you know, the pacing of this, like you mentioned, Jude, was critical, I think, in in having it maintain so that it was a record you wanted to hear from beginning to end. And I think this is a nice more uplifting song uh 
after ending with the ledge. Yeah. So it, it starts off the, the second side of the record, right? Um, management, uh, you know, Warner's actually thought that this was going to be the hit when they heard, I, I want to say maybe even demos or it might've even been uh, songs without, you know, the song without any vocals. I, I forget, mm-hmm. but they heard, they could tell even, Oh, this is going to be the hit. But Paul was super resistant. He didn't want to have this as, as the, the lead single. So when he went to write the lyrics, so yeah, it was before he wrote the lyrics. Yeah. That's where, you know, the whole, you know, the all over, but the shouting's just a waste of time. Yeah. Um, kind of was that, but Paul also says that it was a song about Bob. It was, it was about his, his relationship with Bob. Um, I, what I read about this song was that it get, got compared to like, almost like uh, sounding like the who, huh. um, I don't really listen to the who and I have a couple friends that I know listen to the show, like uh, my friend Darren and my friend Sal who are listening to this, probably shaking their head and either (laughs) like working on a playlist for me as I speak to say, this is what you need to listen to. And not that I, I I think the who is a cool band. I just never dove in. So I can't confirm or deny if it sounds like the who, but people that listen to the who does, does this song sound like the who? I don't know. Let us know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, next on the record, we have uh, Valentine, um, which, again, I feel like they really, um, this is another example of how they effectively paced the album, right? So here we have just like a straight up um, unabashed love song. Um, and, I, and I think this is such a great, great love song. Yeah, it's, it's super catchy. Um, you know, that has that another great Paul lyric, if you were a pill, I'd take a handful at my will. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's great. Yeah. Um, and it was actually added to the album at the last minute because this one is um, it's 11 tracks, but it goes by fast. It's yeah. um, I think without Valentine, it would have been like 29 minutes or something. And, and Sire wanted to have, you know, they were like, no, you need, you need something extra. So they went back in to you know valentine i believe was unfinished paul just ended up adding a like a lengthy guitar solo and instead of having another verse he just did the chorus again and there you go you got a replacement slash paul westerberg uh classic yeah which is interesting oh sorry i was gonna say which is interesting because one of the things about the recording of this album was that paul was openly a little bit self-conscious about having to take um purely take all of the leads on songs without bob so it's interesting to me that that's how they decided to finish the writing of this song was to give Paul a solo on it. Right. Like to play a, a lead, which normally, you know, that would have been Bob playing some crazy yeah. uh, Steve. Is it Steve Howe from yes. Like some crazy, like right. Steve Howe meets punk rock uh, kind of guitar solo. Yeah. So um, we're super so glad I, they played this one at the show. We saw them in 2015. Yeah, it's it's just it's great. It's a classic. Now, the next track, speaking of classics, this is the only one where it's not a bad song, but I would never say that this is a classic. This is this is like kind of the sleazy rock song on the album. It's kind of like the, you know, they had Dose of Thunder on Tim mm-hmm. and uh Gary's Got a Boner uh on Let It Be. Like this is sort of in that vein. Yeah. Um, 
not a bad song, but like if if someone held a gun to my head said you had to take one track off the album, I mean this would be my choice for that. I don't lyrics, that. yeah, like you know it's it's cool. Now what's funny is that a lot of people would think that um, these kind of tracks would show up on the previous records. Where like oh this is like a Bob showcase, like this is so yeah. Bob, so they can play like a sleazy you know Ted Nugent style. I mean they. They yeah. credited uh, Ted Nugent as like a writer on uh, Gary's Got a Boner because it's basically <laughs> Cat Scratch Fever, right? Right. But, yeah, I think that's the one. Um, so they thought, oh, this is like, this would be all Bob, but then this album doesn't have Bob and it's here. So that theory's kind of shot to shit. Right. Um, so the lyrics are about uh, Randy Now, Randy Ellis is his real name. He went by Randy Now. Uh, who was the owner of City Gardens in Trenton, New Jersey, which was a club in the 80s and very early 90s that um, I was just, I'm just too young enough to have missed it, but did like legendary shows, like so many great bands. I know. Played older, there. Yeah. And people who are like just a generation older than me always talk about going to shows there. And they said, yeah, like we, ju- we just missed yeah. it. Like I might have heard about City Gardens. Like I feel like I remember being in like eighth grade when there was that uh sick of it all show mm-hmm. that was with shelter but uh shelter like walter came out and they did youth of today songs yep. yeah um there was a show in like 93 all played and the singer chad price was sick so they flew milo in he did one oh, show man. uh you know where they did a bunch of descendant songs and black flag songs so not to digress too much but it's just a legendary club and there's actually a book um about uh the club i want to say it's called riot on the dance floor i'll probably end up having to just correct that next week but um i've looked through it it's really cool it breaks down almost every show and just talks about uh memories so there's probably some replacements memories in there so i should get my hands on the book and we can share them but um it was written about randy now because uh when the replacements played city gardens they were apparently, you know, played really drunk and just played one of their legendary, like, we're just screwed up set lists. And they're driving, you know, they're leaving the, you know, town the next day and they're listening to college radio. And um, Randy calls in, or maybe he had a radio station, I forget. And he's talking about the replacements and they're listening on the radio. And he's basically saying, those guys are assholes and blah, blah, blah. And uh, so that's, you know, Paul apparently called in and they got in an argument uh, on, on, online. <laughs> <laughs> they got, they got in an argument on uh, Facebook. No, they got, yeah. <laughs> they got in an argument on the phone, which culminated with Paul basically saying something like blow it out your ass. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, right. So that's where the whole like rock and roll loud mouth. Yeah. Line comes from. And the eighties uh, version of a Twitter beef. Yeah, exactly. It was there getting the ring. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so Paul's lungs, he had like a um, lung infection or something uh, and they flared up during the recording of the song. So he stripped down to his waist, rubbed Ben Gay on his chest and he just screamed until he lost his voice. And uh, they said that in that little control room where he was doing vocals, you know, he's there sweat and Ben Gay and mucus <laughs> everywhere. And they said it, smelled pretty funky after they recorded <laughs> this one 
So um, up next, you know, would be uh, Red Red Wine. What are your thoughts on that one, Jude? Yeah, it's actually such a great song. Um, there's a quote from Trouble Boys about the writing of that song. So um, Mayer says, the band labored a bit more to nail Red Red Wine. Ironically, Westerberg's Roaring Ode had been written and demoed sober in his parents' basement. Quote, I had the tape recorder on my mother's ironing board, he recalled. In Memphis, he topped off the track's bridge with a larynx-shredding scream, though he had to fight Dickinson to keep it on the record. Dickinson's wife, Mary Lindsay, insisted it remain, which is like just an interesting kind of side note. But what really strikes me about this one is that like, it seems to be a band, a song about just like, you know, embracing the excesses and, um, you know, the, the wild alcohol induced, you know, behavior that they were used to doing. Right. So like not, maybe not coincidentally, red wine is what, uh, the, the legend has it. Um, Paul Westerberg, uh, vomited onto the stealing of Arden, but it strikes me as odd that this song you know, is sort of one that they really poured over and was particularly calculated. So I, I, I don't want to get um, too much into Tim, but um, versus uh, uh, the opener on that album, Hold My Life, um, where the story is that Westerberg just basically ad-libbed big parts of the lyrics um, as kind of just like a middle finger to everything as he was prone to do, right? So I was always really curious about what's up with the razzle-dazzle lyrics and Hold My Life. Um, and then... Um, when I read Bob Mayer's book, it clarified that that was just something that Westerberg just kind of like ad-libbed on the spot. Um, so really great song. Again, I think they really do do a good job with the pacing. This one's kind of like a gang vocal style, like, you know, uh, barroom rocker kind of kind of deal. Yeah, like I can almost see people that were into Guns N' Roses, yes. which were getting big at the time. like being like, this is a cool song, which, you know, is funny because Tommy ended up playing with Guns N' Roses for almost 20 years, yeah. but it has that vibe. It's just, a, I don't have too much to add. Just it's a, it's a, it's a ripper. It's definitely a better sleazy rock song than shooting dirty pool. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a good one. And uh, it's much better than the UB40 song <laughs> red, red is it called red wine or red red wine i don't I know think so yeah good i never made that connection yeah <laughs> um so next up we have skyway um what are your thoughts on this one greg i i just think this is great it's a short it's pretty short song i want to it's definitely under three minutes um yeah. it's just a really pretty song um you know it's just basically paul on an acoustic guitar mm -hmm. doing what paul does best it has great lyrics and uh it's just a really good good song i love it i yeah. love it i know this is one that i think ends up on a lot of like the compilations and and hits like even though it wasn't a single um it is a pretty popular song of theirs yeah um so yeah it's beautiful it's a really unique concept for a love song right and one that sort of uh, seems to be really connected to Westerberg's roots in the Twin Cities area. Um, uh, as Mayer tells it, this was kind of a really calculated move. So this was the first record, first record, right, that they recorded not at Blackberry Way. Was any of the early stuff recorded somewhere other than Blackberry Way, Greg? I mean, definitely none of their other stuff was done outside of Minneapolis. I yeah. know that much. Yeah. So, um, you know, not... Uh, to be taken for granted, right? That this is a song about um, 
from the perspective of somebody who's standing out on the cold street, um, you know, in the uh, St. Paul, Minnesota area during the wintertime, looking up at the Skyway, the interconnected tunnels that um, uh, run through buildings in the downtown um, Twin Cities area. Um, but uh, Mayor tells it that this was a really calculated move and that this song was recorded not in the Twin Cities area at all, but in Memphis. It's just a really, I, and I mean, you know, potential cynicism is about the message aside, I think it's just a really, really beautiful love song. Yeah, and it, it you know, I know you mentioned on the Candy Apple Gray episode how Bob can, just Bob and an acoustic guitar can write a song that'll bring you to tears. Yeah. I mean, Paul can do the same thing. And, you know, Tim ends with, an acoustic song, you know, here comes a regular. Mm -hmm. And in a way it almost, this song almost sort of feels like an ending track. Mm -hmm. so, sort of because it, cause like, you know, in the way they sequenced it, you, it's almost like they did the Metallica move where like, you know, Metallica used to sequence their, there's like the first song will be the thra super thrashy. And then the fourth song would be the ballad. You know, you had fade to black and sanitarium uh, and one, and then they would have like instrumental somewhere. And then the last track or, or, you know, sometimes flipped. So in a way this sort of matches the pacing of Tim. So you can almost yeah. think like, Oh, this is the last song, but luckily it's not. And yeah. we get to the final track, which is can't hardly wait. So what yeah. do you think about that one, Jude? It's, it's great. Like, it's just, um, while you think the album could have successfully ended on Skyway and like, you'd be happy. I don't know. This is like a cherry on top for me or something like that. Um, actually personally, this might have been the first replacement song that I ever consciously heard and was like aware of. So when I was a kid, we had HBO and we would just, uh, watch a lot of movies that were on HBO. Um, so this song plays over the credits for the film of the same name. Um, and I remember as a kid just taking note of that. Um, I actually think, uh, not to offend anyone's sensibilities, I think that movie itself is a pretty mediocre uh, teen comedy drama, um, but the song is awesome. You, you actually offended my sensibility. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I love that movie. Okay. I think, I think, um, I think it, it, I mean, it literally came out, I think, when I was that, exact age graduating okay. and stuff but uh it's a funny movie and i never put two and two together until i got into the replacements like oh this song's called can't hardly wait yeah. and can't hardly wait was one that they were working on for a couple years i mean it was it was it dates back to before tim you know they were they were working on it. i think they did demos with alex chilton um then it wasn't quite ready for tim so they finally did this i mean this song is a classic yeah. it is an absolute classic um you know like like i talked about last week with candy apple gray ending the album with a closing song that good is always like a huge huge plus for me yeah um you know and, and i know people were probably thrown off by uh by the horns um which were apparently added later on mm -hmm. jim dickinson went back and added all this stuff uh, after yeah. the band left and um but i think it's the horns are perfect for it um alex chilton actually plays guitar on this song he doesn't play on alex chilton 
but he plays on this, which is kind of funny and in a way sort of like a classic replacements move. Yeah. Um, so that's, I mean, that's the end of the record proper. Uh, like I said um, earlier, we will do a breakdown of the B-sides and all separately. Like Can't Hardly Wait um, was also released as a single um, that had an exclusive B-side. So that'll all be touched on later, don't worry. So now is the moment of truth where we're going to talk about what our favorite songs are so that we can um, add them to the mix eventually once we have a couple episodes under our belt. Um, and we'll keep you informed on when that happens. Um, so Jude, where do, where do you stand on this album? What's your favorite song on Please to Meet Me? It's hard because there are a lot of good songs on this one. And I think kind of something that we discussed last week, and I think that what makes it such a um, record that stands the test of time is if you ask me on a, um, at a given time in my life, my answer would be different. But um, today in 2020, my answer is Valentine. This song, I mean, it was something that you said um, in talking about Candy Apple Gray last week, but this song just every single time I put this record on, just hits me right in the feels. It's just like such an amazing love song. It just has, it has everything, a song for all seasons. Um, Especially maybe, Valentine's Day. Exactly. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago when I was a little younger, I potentially would have said IOU. I think Valentine is just this, like when they, they did play this live, I was like so stoked. Greg, your favorite song. So, I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball as well because, well, first off, to choose a favorite on this one is much more difficult than last week. Yeah. Um, there's probably five potential favorite songs on here. Valentine would be one of them. Um, but, and you know, for me, Alex Chilton has an obvious personal, deep personal connection. It's an amazing song. But I'm going to go with The Ledge. I think that The Ledge just really encapsulates that feeling you get as a teenager but yeah. even as an almost 40 year old man that feeling of alienation of just being depressed of being you know uh feeling like everything sucks and you know you're you're upset i think this really captures that that feeling um, and like, like I said, the line, you know, I'm the boy she can't ignore for the first time in my life. I'm sure. Yeah. That's, that's heavy. Yeah. You know, he's, he's basically saying like, you know, nobody pays attention to me. I'm up on this ledge. Probably doesn't even, you know, I, I looked at it as like, doesn't even, she doesn't even know my name. Maybe he's upset about, you know, unrequited love or something. I don't know. And, yeah. and really, I don't really want to know. I like having it in these, yeah. um, the, these kind of broad terms. And I'm not really a guy that uh, is good with picking apart lyrics. Um, but, you know, that, that line, he's basically saying, well, now she'll know who I am because I'm going to yeah. jump off of this building. I mean, yeah. that's, that's, that's pretty depressing. Yeah. Um, but I just think that it's an important song. And I think it really shows the power of Paul Westerberg in that he can write a song that'll crack you up, but he can write a song that'll really bring you to tears. Yeah. So yeah. my pick is the, is the ledge. I think it should have been a hit like we talked about. And I think it's, uh, it's a shame that it wasn't. 
Yeah. So that's our picks. And like I said, we'll wait till a few more episodes. Um, you know, when we have some more songs to throw into a mix, but that's going to be it for this week, everybody. So I want to thank everyone for listening and we're looking forward to joining you on our future explorations of this essential Midwestern punk rock. Um, Next week, we're going to be discussing Husker Du's 1983 album, Everything Falls Apart, which was actually released on their own label, Reflex Records. So stay tuned and thanks so much for listening. Have a good one, folks. Bye. All right. Yeah, man. So like what else? Anything going on today?